This is Disaster and Change, a podcast brought to you by the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. This episode marks the 75th anniversary of the Allied victory in Europe at the end of World War II. In Russia and many other parts of the former Soviet Union, this date is celebrated on the 9th of May, also known as Victory Day, marking the anniversary of the Red Army's victory in the so-called Great Patriotic War of 1941-45. To discuss the massive changes that the Soviet Union underwent in the aftermath of World War II, we welcome Professor Mark Edele, Hanson Professor in History at the University of Melbourne. Mark is a specialist in Soviet history, with a particular interest in the history of Stalinism, the war, and its aftermath in the Soviet Union. Disaster and Change The title of this podcast series implies an hypothesis. We seem to ask if an unplanned and large-scale calamity, a war say, or a global economic crisis, leads to social, cultural, and political change which goes beyond the immediate impact of this catastrophe. This question is in the air as I record this podcast in the Australia of 2020, a year of unprecedented and apocalyptic bushfires, as well as the COVID-19 health and economic catastrophe. Expectations for change abound. We will no longer travel as much and have our conferences via video link, declare academics sick of air travel. Childcare will remain free, expect working parents enjoying the sudden assumption of this financial burden by the state. The government payments to keep people in their job might well become a guaranteed minimum wage, declare optimists. The crisis will keep away protections for workers and make our economy more flexible, predict neoliberals. The economic crisis will hasten our march towards a Green New Deal, opine social democrats and ecologists. The state will disappear and communism will break out, declare cheaply produced flyers with anarchy flags posted on walls in my Melbourne suburb. Universities will remember that their mission is to educate Australia's youth, declare those who always thought that that was so, while government bureaucrats expect that the crisis will pivot the academy towards providing job training via online instruction and micro-credentialing. We will become a more compassionate society in the wake of this shared calamity, proclaim humanists. We will rebuild Australian industry now that globalization has shown its ugly underbelly, hope nationalists. Disaster will lead to change, everybody seems to believe. And of course, it often has. The history of welfare in the United States is intimately connected to calamities, the Civil War, the Great Depression, or World War II. In Britain, the warfare state of the years of World War II transformed into the welfare state of the post-war decades, which was dismantled only late in the 20th century. In Eastern Europe, World War I led to a whole series of revolutions and civil wars, the Russian Revolution being only the best remembered. Calamity leads to change, both good and bad. That's what history teaches. But does it? In order to test our hypothesis of an intimate connection between disaster and cultural political change, I want to investigate one particular case study which I have devoted much of my professional life to, the Soviet Union and World War II. The Soviet Union in the wake of World War II is a particularly good example to test our implicit hypothesis. The calamity of the war, or more precisely, the catastrophe of the war with Germany of 41-45, 
had a devastating impact on Soviet society, on the Soviet economy, and on the Soviet population. 27 million people had died because of the war, or about 12% of the pre-war population. 1,710 towns and cities had been destroyed, more than 70,000 villages were burned or bombed. The destruction affected more than 6 million buildings, some 32,000 industrial enterprises, and 98,000 collective farms. Millions of Soviet citizens were homeless, millions more were disabled and sick, traumatized by years of relentless misery and horror. Given the immensity of the destruction and the depth of the suffering, it might not surprise that hopes for change ran high. Like us in today's catastrophe, Soviet citizens felt that the disaster they had lived through should live to profound changes once it was over. Rural people expected that the hated collective farms would disappear, these institutions of disenfranchisement, oppression, and economic exploitation. The intelligentsia expected liberalization in the cultural sphere so they could again perform their jobs without constant fear of censorship, silencing, or worse. Everybody hoped that consumption would normalize, that life would be a bit more like what soldiers had seen when marching through Eastern Europe and into Germany, that the life of endless toil, of standing in lines, of poor nutrition and terrible housing, which had characterized the 1930s, would give to a normal life and to abundance of consumer goods. Veterans expected the special status afforded to soldiers during the war would translate into an elevated position in post-war society. Even Stalin's closest collaborators hoped that the more autonomous role they were allowed to play during the crisis of the war years would endure into the post-war decades. Such hopes were bound for bitter disappointment. True, the state led an impressive reconstruction effort. The number of people engaged in construction, which had collapsed from 1.7 million in 1940 to only some 800,000 in 1943, was again up to 1.5 million in 45. They built nearly 31 million square meters of housing space in 44 and 45, the majority in the formerly occupied regions. Already at the start of 45, there were more roads with hard covering to ease automobile transport than there had been in 1941. Turnover in transportation went from 259.7 billion kilometer tons in 1942 to 374 billion in 1945. In 45, train transport reached 67% of 1941 indicators for goods transported and 63% for passenger travel. Electricity production reached 1940 levels in 1946, coal in 1947, steel in 1948, and oil in 1949. In the same year, Soviet industry produced as much soap as it had in 1940, but foodstuffs such as sugar and meat, but also agricultural production more generally, took until 1950 to reach levels which had been common before the German attack. Some consumer goods, such as shoes or cloth, had to wait until 1951. The attempted stimulation of consumer goods industry, however, was soon stifled by the emerging Cold War. Life, both in the overcrowded cities and in the countryside, remained extremely hard even after the famine of 46-47 was over. The collective farms were reasserted in 1946. A campaign to remove so-called parasites from villages all over the Soviet Union followed in 1948, and mass collectivization was imposed upon the Baltic republics from 1949. 
Thus, a central pillar of Stalin's revolution from above was reconstructed in the Soviet Union, the collective farm. Other aspects of this return to the Stalinist political and economic order proceeded in parallel. The black market, which had helped supply much of the urban population during the war, was brought under control, and a currency reform confiscated wealth accumulated by speculation, as unauthorized trade was called. The intelligentsia was brought to heel in a campaign against all co-towing before the West. This anti-cosmopolitanism campaign is often seen as anti-Semitic, which it was, but it was much more than that, targeting anybody with appreciation of or links to the world outside the Soviet Union. The political system was re-centralized again, and just in case they had gotten cocky, Stalin's entourage was again threatened with terror by the dictator. So they knew who was boss. A renewal of the Communist Party itself, backbone of the regime and major tool to manage the ambitious and the upwardly mobile, was part of this process. The war had brought people of dubious loyalty and poor ideological preparation into this very sanctuary of Stalinism. Many of the old cadres had died at the front lines and new recruits were selected largely on the strength of their fighting record. The lack of political preparation and ideological purity of many of the new recruits now caused some consternation. A major, unbloody purge was conducted together with an education campaign for young communists. In 1946-48, the majority of communists who were excluded from the party in civilian party organizations had joined during the war in Germany, 56%, or 171,000 people. In one word, the war was over. Stalinism was reconstructed. Stalin had triumphed. In terms of our guiding question, does calamity lead to political change? This history thus has the opposite implication to those examples mentioned earlier. Notwithstanding the British or the US examples, even the catastrophe of the size of the German-Soviet War of 1941-45 does not necessarily lead to political change if those in control of the political process, in this case Stalin, do not intend this to happen. This thesis has wider applicability as we argue in a book on the global history of veteran benefits, published this year by Cornell University Press, the extent to which veterans gain post-war status depends, first of all, on the political process of the post-war years. The history of the 20th century knows examples for nearly any possible outcome. Veterans of lost wars gaining status while winners lose out. Authoritarian regimes who grant privileges and democracies who resist the demands of their veterans and the obverse of each of these scenarios. The impact of wars on post-war societies depends heavily on the post-war histories of these societies. Who is in charge, who can mobilize, and who can be convinced by whom? They are a question not of social scientific laws of cause and effect, but of politics, of human action, and of struggles about power. And yet, the Soviet case is not just one where a dictatorial regime denied political, social, economic, and cultural change induced by the calamity of war and demanded by the population. While an aging Stalin retained dictatorial powers, beneath his claim to totalitarian rule developed collective leadership and a more routinized bureaucracy. In the 1930s, Stalin's immediate collaborators were terrorized into insignificance. After the Great Terror of 37-38, Stalin truly was a totalitarian dictator, 
uninhibited even by his immediate entourage. The war proved too complex a problem to continue in this manner, and Stalin's henchmen gained considerable agency within a system of wartime crisis management. The result was a reassertion of Stalin's team, which the dictator tried to undo after the war without ever completely succeeding. Teamwork, as Sheila Fitzpatrick has pointed out in a book of that name, Stalin's team, bubbled away under the surface, and once Stalin died in 1953, his former lieutenants were ready to take power as a group. The change induced by war thus took a decade to emerge once the post-war roadblock, that is, Joseph Stalin, was removed. This war-induced evolution of the Soviet system, away from totalitarian one-man rule and towards collective leadership, found its equivalent further down the hierarchy. Here, a more and more professional bureaucracy worked according to rules and regulations in what began to look increasingly like a modern bureaucratic system. For the time being, the system was capped, like Team Stalin, by the whimsical dictator, but once Stalin died in 1953, a more predictable dictatorship could emerge more or less instantly. The delayed institutionalization of the war's impact can be studied particularly well in the example of Soviet war veterans. After an initial phase during demobilization in 1945-48, veterans' welfare all but disappeared. War disabled retained some very basic welfare rights, but they were inadequate and geared towards mobilizing them to work, if at all possible. To many veterans, the return home was a bitter disappointment. Why was the Soviet state so stingy towards those who had saved it from destruction? Part of the answer was ideological. To Soviet officials, trained to think in Marxist-Leninist terms, special privileges for veterans made no sense. Stalinism was meant to make life better for the working masses, not for old soldiers. Veteran welfare always smacked somewhat of fascism, one of the reasons why the Soviet Union did not allow an organized veterans' movement in the interwar years. As one custodian of ideological purity explained, veteran movements in the capitalist world were, quote, imperialist and anti-Soviet as well as reactionary. In the Soviet Union, a veteran organization was unnecessary as the government cared about the citizens as a whole, he lectured. The attempt to isolate a section of the Soviet people, those who have been in the army, from the rest, those who have not been in the army, the ideologue from the Central Committee apparatus lectured, was absolutely unnecessary. And then there was the issue of money. In 1945, there were between 20 and 25 million veterans alive in the Soviet Union. The state could simply not afford a major benefit system for such a large group, as officials found out to their slight shock when they reviewed the allowances attached to wartime decorations, which as a result they cancelled. It took until the late 1970s. After enough old soldiers had died, the economy expanded and the state moved away from the destruction of the 1940s that veteran welfare became financially feasible. Even then, however, when only 9 million combat survivors of World War II were still around, veteran activists lobbying for a benefit system were keenly aware that, quote, this is not a simple question and not an easy question and not a cheap question. We still need money to ensure the power of our state. Eventually, however, veterans did gain legal recognition of their status, which was enshrined in law in 1978. This new status was the outcome of a complex political process involving the persistent pressure from veterans, 
both within and outside of a new organization formed in 1956, and the greater receptiveness to veteran issues by General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev, who fancied himself a war hero, as well as decreased resistance from the Ministry of Finance because the number of war survivors was more manageable now than it had been in 1945. In the Soviet Union, then, veterans did not serve as the avant-garde of the welfare state as they did in other contexts, most notably the United States. It was only well after the more generalized Soviet welfare state had taken off in the 1950s that veterans gained a special status inscribed in law. Indeed, rather than rewarding veterans, the post-Stalinist Soviet leadership endeavored to reward the entire population for its effort in the war. The generalized welfare philosophy made perfect sense on a variety of levels. First, it fit ideologically much better than a special regime for veterans. Socialism was meant to make life better for the working masses, not for old soldiers, the preoccupation of fascists. By providing generalized welfare, the regime finally made good on the promises of the October Revolution for building a better life for working people. Moreover, it also reflected the fact that the suffering of war was not borne only by soldiers at the front line. Indeed, overall, more Soviet civilians died in this war than military personnel. Civilians were mobilized in one of the most brutal war efforts of history. Civilian life was in many ways as regimented as life in the army, and working and living conditions were extremely hard at the front line. It thus was quite logical to see the entire population, with the exception of a few traders who had made common cause with the enemy, as deserving of state welfare. The universalized suffering of the wartime years softened the pre-war trend among officials to see welfare recipients as shirkers rather than victims of circumstance. Disability, previously a minority concern, became linked to wartime sacrifice and hence raised its profile. While overall policy only shifted after Stalin's death, these reforms were already conceptualized in the final years of the dictator's life under the impact of war and victory. Indeed, one of Khrushchev's most iconic welfare programs, the mass housing campaign of the 1950s and 60s, was a direct response to the destruction of the war, which had led to homelessness on an unprecedented scale. Not only was there massive destruction in the former frontline regions, in the hinterland too, housing stock had seen no upkeep, was in bad repair, lacked basic sanitation, and was overstuffed with suffering humanity. 25 million people were homeless. At least 2 million lived in dugouts. Those who did not manage to crowd into cramped rooms in communal apartments lived in tents, in dormitories, they slept in kitchens or hallways. Under Khrushchev then, a massive building program created what later would be called Khrushchev slums, but at this time was indeed the greatest housing program in the world, as one historian has called it. The housing program was the most visible of the Khrushchev welfare reforms, but it was not the only one. Equally important was the pension reform of 56 and its widening to the rural population in 1964. Together, they were part of an overarching and highly utopian program to ensure, quote, an abundance of material and cultural values for the whole population. Indeed, the construction of communist society, as the 1961 program of the Communist Party put it. This program had been first outlined in the wake of victory in 1947, but was then shelved as impossible. From the mid-1950s, it was implemented. Not always did the results of the war, 
the demands from below from the population and the efforts from above from the state interlock so neatly in the long run as in the case of the Khrushchevite welfare programs. We have already seen how one result of the war, the new social group of war veterans, ran aground ideological sandbanks until these were removed much later, under Brezhnev. The same was true for gardening, another mass phenomenon engendered by the war. Urban gardening for food by individuals, their families and enterprises was a reaction to the war-induced squeeze on civilian consumption during the war in Europe in 3941. Already in 1939, more than a million urban dwellers were engaged in such self-provisioning, nursing close to one-third of all Soviet cows and pigs on their private or company plots. In 1940, the central government saw itself compelled officially to regulate what was already a reality, the distribution of land for garden plots in cities and towns. After the German attack, it began to actively encourage the phenomenon when it became clear that the rationing system would be unable to keep workers from starvation. Mass gardening thus ensured the survival of civilians while the central state could focus more of its attention on the provisioning of the armed forces. The emergence of this gardening state, a state encouraging gardening and raising gardeners, was an ideological compromise engendered by war. The focus on the family which this policy implied on self-sufficiency and on keeping essentially private garden plots clearly smacked of petty bourgeois tendencies to stalwarts of Marxist-Leninist purity. No wonder that during the more purest years of Khrushchev's utopian tenure as first secretary, the state again cracked down on the practice. The Brezhnev years, however, the 1970s, which would bring finally legal recognition for veterans, also brought the final capitulation of the state to its citizen gardeners. The 1977 Brezhnev constitution enshrined not only the right of citizens to farm in order to supply their own families, but even declared that, quote, the state and collective farms have to assist citizens in keeping their private plots. This culture of gardening had wide-ranging implications well beyond the history of the Soviet Union. It was food grown in the gardens of ordinary citizens, which allowed the population in Russia, Ukraine and elsewhere to survive the catastrophic collapse of the economy in the early 1990s, a somewhat perverse return in peacetime to the crisis of war which had given rise to mass gardening. Where does this convoluted history of the impact of war on the Soviet Union leave us? Let me summarize the implications to the question of disaster and change in four theses. First, disaster does not automatically lead to cultural, economic, or political change. Even a catastrophe where 12% of the population dies and much of the survivors live in dugouts does not necessarily force the overall system to change. The Soviet Union entered the war with a dictatorial system and a command economy. It loosened some of the constraints within the system in order to survive the war. After the war was over, it snapped back into its pre-war mold. The Soviet Union would remain a command economy until it broke down in 1991, and it would also remain a dictatorship. 2. Whether or not change occurs does not depend on the depth of the nature of the crisis, but on the post-crisis political process. In the Soviet Union, change did eventually occur once the political process became more reactive to demands from the population. 3. 
crisis-induced changes are not necessarily immediate. They might take years, yes, decades to work themselves out. How fast or how slow change will emerge, again, depends on who does what, with and against whom, after the crisis is over. 4. The future, therefore, is open. Whether or not the disasters we currently live through will result in a different society and a different world order depends on what we do now and after the crisis is over. It's up to all of us to figure out what changes we need and how to work for the world we envision. Thank you for listening to this episode of Disaster and Change. Tell a friend, write a review, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Great thanks again to our early career researcher, Henry Reese, and our SHAPS Forum team leader, Nicole Davis, for their work in putting it together. Please contact Julie Fedor, the SHAPS Engagement Chair, or me, Margaret Cameron, Head of School, if you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear about. This podcast was produced by the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which our university operates. Lands of the Kulin peoples, which includes the Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Wadharong, Jajawarong and Tongarong peoples, as well as the Yorta Yorta Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands was never ceded.